Okay, good morning everyone and welcome to another new energy chinwag with Charlie Rutten and myself, John Massey. Um, this morning we thought we'd talk about offshore wind um, specifically and some of the things that are happening in offshore wind in terms of the, the changes going on, where it's heading over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, both because it's important for a number of reasons. Um, it fits very in a very big way into the UK's strategy, um, both industrial strategy and also announced just today their zero carbon strategy. Um, it also ties in quite well with the upcoming all energy event that we'll both be attending. It will be a big feature there. So, Charlie, why don't you kick off? Um, what are you seeing coming up in offshore wind? Yeah, I suppose the obvious thing, uh, good morning everybody, is that obviously turbines are getting much bigger. Uh, there have been some beer moths mentioned in uh, in recent weeks. I was lucky enough to get uh, what we thought well, it was the biggest one in the world, a 7 megawatt Mitsubishi Heavy Industries installed at uh, Hunterston, the west coast of Scotland. And this was about four years ago. I uh, was PM for that. That was a 7 megawatt uh, machine. It uh, was a quantum change from what went before, 3.45s were the main ones that were being planted UK waters prior to that. few um, implications, it wasn't just bigger, but uh, it meant that it flew through some of the project hurdles. Um, a bigger machine doesn't take twice the amount of vessels, it doesn't take twice the amount of health and safety, it doesn't take twice the amount of material. So if you can plant one seven megawatt machine, it's far, far better than planning from a project point of view, or certainly project economics point of view, than planting two 3.5 megawatt machines. There's uh, benefits right throughout the uh, the value uh, chain. Uh, since then, um, we've seen at Burbo, I think uh, they've got is it nine megawatts uh, planted and operational there. Uh, we've now got uh, 10 megawatts are being uh, tested. And I've read of even, uh, even bigger uh, machines, even up to an eye-watering uh, 20 megawatts being mooted, but I think uh, GE and, and indeed others. Uh, so some, some astronomical figures being mentioned regarding to individual turbine specifications. What are your thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I mean, I was just trying to remember what the, the current um the current sizes that are going in. I mean, we've got we've got um, eight 8.8 megawatts, I think, was the biggest one um, connected in the UK last year. Um, we've certainly got 10 megawatts reasonably quickly on the way. I think GE have got their 12 megawatt turbine. As you mentioned, there was news um, the other day that uh, certainly as part of a kind of permitting and planning process, um, one of the developers had got permission to use 20 megawatt turbines. Now, obviously, important to state they don't exist yet. Um, and part of that planning is just making sure that they're covered if that size does arrive rather than that they've specified they will use that size. But um, there's every indication that they're, they're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, that, that Those kind of size of turbines, we're talking about kind of 280-metre diameter blades that kind of thing i mean these yeah, are involved i think things. it's important to, to stress the sheer high-watering nature of these uh, these structures uh, i think that some of the developers and certainly in the uk are now looking at tip heights of up to 350 meters yeah. really <laughs> it's uh it's, it's an eye-watering uh, construction uh, with all the things that go back which we'll perhaps discuss in uh, in a minute and there are a few implications of it obviously I think one of the implications from a landscape and visual point of view that these behemoths are designed to be far out 
at sea well without with of any localized uh, viewpoints uh, which might uh, concern uh, stakeholders and then of course there's the the whole heap of uh, practicalities on how do you go about building something that's three football pitches high the sheer yeah, I mean, that, that was certainly one of my um thoughts when reading that kind of story is um producing the turbine somewhere is only is only one part of the, pro- the problem um you've got a whole issue then as to whether you've got the infrastructure on shore to um if you do need to move them about in practice you'd build them build them next to where you're going to put them but have you got the infrastructure the dockside um to deal with them have you got the the cranes and the other bits and pieces have you got the boats that are capable of moving them about so I mean that's a, that's an interesting question. It'd be interesting to hear your idea on on that. Um, it as an industry, does there reach a point where you've because a lot of investment is going into um, places like Grimsby and Hull and so on, um, with big facilities uh, ready ready for these big um, offshore wind farms that are coming up in the next few years. If you're building infrastructure and building facilities for a certain size of turbine and for sake of argument say they're looking at kind of 10 12 megawatts which are certainly on the way um how easy is it to just shift to going to 20 megawatts it, it might sound great in theory but from a practical side of view that would be one of my um, questions i suppose is to from a practical point of view what are the barriers in terms of making those real quantum leaps yeah so it's, it's interesting because you and i had our annual review in uh, Hull uh, just before Christmas. We'd attended the Martin Whitnash supply chain oriented exhibition and uh, obviously both Hull and Grimsby are now world leaders in uh, the field of uh, offshore operations and uh, maintenance. I was at uh, the rather glamorous location of the old fish docks at uh, Grimsby in recent months and that is built on an imperial and an epic scale. It goes mile after mile and uh, you can see uh, the, the, the sites preparing, uh, you can see that the signage up for SOVs, these mammoth motherships, and they'll certainly have a role to play in the ops and maintenance. And, and the scale of it, how much, how much acreage, how many hectares do you need on a, on a dockside? Uh, these are the kind of things that are now being addressed at very early development stages. Uh, I got involved in a couple of French offshore uh, wind farms, and there were very, very early stage. We were looking at how many hectares, what the dock sizes were, whether the locks could open, whether we had railway facilities direct to the dockside, whether there was space to expand. And there's not that many spaces. Mm. Um, certainly, as, as we've got the sectoral deal already, additional seven gigawatts being mooted for the next uh, round, uh, round four, in uh, the, 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 the English, Northern Irish and uh, Welsh round. And that, that's driving the industry forward. So developers are looking. They are looking at the acreage. They're looking at the ports. They're looking at the infrastructure. And then they're doing some uh, uh, teasing out of uh, of the variables because uh, mm. obviously it's a big thing for an area. We saw this in Hull, how a, a city can almost be regenerated if it's got sufficient quayside, quayside access, skilled labour force, and all the things that not just one developer but perhaps clusters of developers uh, can bring as they uh, as they look to uh, to scale up. So yeah. it's not a taste you, of it. Do you think? Um, I mean, on on that point, then. Do you do you think there reaches a point where, while it's great in theory to have bigger and bigger turbines offshore, and from a kind of economic model point of view, it looks great, more more energy from the same foundation, that kind of stuff. Um, does there reach a point though where the actual practicalities start to um, 
hit up against the the theory um, and so actually yeah. do start to put a, a ceiling um, on the size of these things. It's interesting you say that because I went to a lecture a couple of years ago by a fellow called Steesdale who's reappeared. We'll come to that in a moment. And he, when he started, he's one of the pioneers of of wind, and it, it was right back. This is twenty or so years ago, and he said, "Look, uh, in the early days, they were quite excited because they thought that one time the the, the if." The trend continued. They might one day get one megawatt turbines. They might theoretically be possible. And now, as you've just mentioned, we've already got 8.5, 8.8 machines already operational in relatively short. So it's difficult to say there will be constraints. I mean, there's got to be constraints on, on, on the height. We've talked up to 350 metres. Well, there's not many cranes. Now, when I was PM for Humsiston, we did look at some rather fanciful um, uh, kind of kind of ideas that, and, and some of the turbines actually erected themselves. Uh, mm. they, actually, <laughs> it sounds fanciful, but I think the idea was that, that perhaps a vessel would uh, install the first portion, but within that first portion, a, a crane would uh, then be installed with it, and that would then build up the rest of the of the turbines. So there are unusual uh, potential uh, solutions. Um, obviously, there are not many vessels that could build not many cranes that could build at the moment something up to 350 metres to tip. But I suppose what is interesting is that the trend has been already to bigger and bigger. And funnily enough, this, uh, this Mr. Steezel did say that he thought that absolute, absolute, and this was only a couple of years ago, top that could be uh, achieved was a 10 megawatt turbine. And obviously from what you've said, that's already been, it's not surpassed yet, but it's, it's the, the, the number of uh, options that will take it well beyond, well yeah. beyond. 10 megawatt. Yeah. Yeah, so no, that's I... the speed of it. Uh, there, there must be constraints, and the, the, the constraints might come from unusual uh, sources. You might find it's probably the vessel and the. Uh, the yeah, the I mean that was kind of something guess, like that. It was that kind of thing I was I was thinking about because if if companies are making big capital investments in infrastructure like vessels and cranes and so on um, to fulfil projects at, at current sizes or even projects at kind of mid 2020s sizes. Um, I guess once they've sunk that investment, then there becomes a question as to whether it becomes more economic for them to get the most out of those assets and carry on installing at kind of, I don't know, 12 megawatt, 15 megawatt size. Um, if it's rather than then, if it's going to take a quantum leap to, to build a whole bunch of new vessels and cranes to do 20 megawatts. So, yeah, I mean, it will be, I guess it, it won't be technical or um, that kind of challenge, it will be more the kind of business case economics, the kind of assets they've got um, challenge, I would have thought that would, would Yeah, I mean, on the technical side, uh, you're taking a lot of weight, the nacelles are very heavy, they can weigh hundreds of tonnes, and to move one of those 200 metres above sea level is going to take some eye-watering uh, yep. uh, equipment, but we know that, that weight is being reduced on, 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 on the machines. The blades themselves, obviously, are substantial, and they've got um, mm. heft, uh, but again, people are looking at lighter uh, materials. Uh, yeah, and but... also still looking at two blades, two bladed turbines. There was um, a developer um, and technology developer um, who was looking at having two bladed turbines out there. And I think he was talking about kind of 2022 time frame. Um, so, yeah, there's other They've been around as indeed a vertical mm. axis uh, turbines right from the early days of, of, of wind. And they've got certain benefits. The... Uh, Onshore, I think they went off 
uh, because uh, they, they, they were right there. But they, I think people didn't like the look. They, they've got this strange flicking phenomenon as, as, as they move around. They don't tend to have this nice, smooth motion. They took a bit more wear on the bearings, but I think they only were 10% less efficient than, than the three-bladers. It was marginal, and they've got big advantages regarding transportation, with regard to heavy lifting, yeah. with regard to scale. I think the other problem, the other problem onshore was that they, um, I think they have a faster rotation speed, which then means the tip speed is bigger, so the noise is louder as well. I think there are limitations on that onshore as well. Um, yeah, if you're 100 miles uh, off uh, the North Sea, I wouldn't have thought that was Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're not so bothered uh, about the sea. You might be the radio test and that. <laughs> so I wouldn't rule anything out. Uh, as I say, I think it's slightly unwise. There must be a limit, like you say, to how high you can physically and whether it's worth spending the money on yeah. extra craneage and extra vessels and where the where the bottlenecks occur. And there will be unexpected. Un, in the un, how do you get the uh, technicians up two hundred meters? Are you going to put yeah. helicopter pads? So that, unusual constraints that, that might not. They might be soluble. But they might not be soluble in an economic and effective. Yeah, exactly. I find this Model T version comes along and it might not yeah. be perfect, but it's good enough. It's and you'll get 20 years project life out of this. And, uh, and it might be the one that, that is the front runner. Yeah. Yeah. So it's bigger. I suppose the one thing I, I, I want to stress is that it's not just for fixed uh, bottoms. This because we, we, it's the, the, the floating market you've already mentioned is coming is coming up, and some of these big machines will also have floating versions mm. and other versions as uh, as well yeah yeah no i'm floating yeah that's an, an interesting one um we've we've both seen stories looking at california um and developments in california but both from the developer side and also sort of boem the licensing side so that market is definitely starting to um happen and if that happens it will be a lot of that will be floating well i think it'll have to be floating in the majority because there's simply not nice shallow seabed to attach to um you went to a floating event i think late last year <clears throat> the I, I guess when i've looked at floating realistically it's kind of 2025 there was an orsted presentation i saw recently which was kind of 2025 to 2030 was kind of scaling it up any yeah. any different of opinion on that from people? Yeah, I'd agree. It's a slower burn. You think um, obviously there's, there's there's less steel going in the foundation. You think, well, why are these things not cheaper? Well, it's not it's not straightforward as that. They need a whole heap of uh, of technology to tether them to the seabed in uh, in decent de de decent ways. And the cabling is perhaps one of the issues people often uh, forget about as a, as a constraint. But there are a yeah. number of floaters. It's not one size fits all. There are these um, the ones that have been. Kind of uh, popularized by Statoil Equinor, the one with a deep spar, and the spar can be 80 meters, which can be similar to the um, to the nacelle at the uh, the hub height at the uh, the moment. So those are suitable for deep water. They're, they're ones on like tripod designs, the ones on case on designs. It's not one size fits all. And you might find sites in future, especially sloping sites, they might have two or three different types of floating machines so you might it might, might not be that obvious from the shoreline looking at them mm. but they might have different types it depends on the on, on whether the site is nice and level or whether there's a, a kind of a seabed that is, is is consistent or if you've got a sloping site and many sites do come into that two or three different sites but i suppose the point is that look, it's a few years behind mainstream offshore wind if you like uh, but um the, the scalability uh, when, when they were testing these they used to put old smaller machines and test it the, the principles are pretty well established now so they're going to get bigger and bigger and this obviously the operational one up in scotland is it six fives or five sixes up at uh, 
yeah, Book of yeah. Deeps, and then yeah, uh, so that's megawatts, yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with with very big, big success uh, of capacity. So that's only encouraged the industry further. I think there's one called Tampen that they want to link into oil and gas, which is another mm. thing that we should perhaps uh, touch upon in a moment. How different there are different synergies between existing seabed use and future seabed use between even fossils are decarbonizing and some of the projects are driven by that and then the sheer scalability of the uh, of the sizes as well yeah and i think on scalability the other trend i've certainly seen recently with foundations one of the problems in terms of reducing cost has been that when you've had to customize foundations for every single project they've been different for every single project whereas nothing drives costs down like the ability to kind of mass manufacture and, and modularize these things now obviously floating is very well suited to um a kind of mass production approach um one a floating system in one place can be the same as a floating system in another place um you don't you're not designing it for a specific type of seabed or whatever but even on the fixed foundations there was there's certainly been developers looking at instead of every time having to kind of redesign and recommission and um, particular foundations to, for their particular project is to try and standardize it a bit more um, try and make more use of standard design standard construction and so on um, simply because there's a way to drive down the, the cost of these things rather than it has, reinvent it has the wheel worked, every time. We've, we've both seen how the cost of offshore has plummeted which is further driven uh, the industry further driven um, the drive towards larger turbines with the fewer, as I mentioned, fewer installation costs, fewer health and safety. Uh, fewer, so it's, it's not it's, it, it's a far far more efficient project economics to have a bigger turbine than uh, a number of uh, uh, of smaller ones, and the cost has plummeted. So this Model T approach, and it doesn't have to be the best technical machine, but it does happen to it needs to, it needs to be reliable, it needs to be fixable, it needs to be something that can be uh, bashed out in the uh, in the factories in quantity yeah. which which gives you the uh, the option and it might well be that the best technical um solution uh, isn't necessarily the one that uh, prevails there are other industries where there are examples of uh, of technologies that are not necessarily the absolute epitome of, of excellence but they, they have prevailed yeah exactly yeah it's the yeah the difference between as you say technical technical performance and, and business performance <clears throat> the two aren't necessarily exactly the same so <clears throat> excuse me so yeah we've took um size of turbines going up um trying to make repeatable projects floating turbines um other other trends hydrogen we've both yeah, I think, some interesting um, stuff around hydrogen specifically with offshore wind there are zones um i've been to a number of crown estate um presentations and especially there are zones where the linkage between um, the, the, the electrolysis, which was perhaps well suited to using overspill energy from offshore wind production. We know that the uh, grid demand isn't the same all the time, but wind does spin 24-7, so why not use that? If there are grid constraints, why not use that? And so uh, hydrogen, we've discussed in a separate podcast, but I think the essence of it is that the, the technology is proven. It's been around for, I think your word was Yonks, the electrolysis uh, mm. uh, element of it. And it, it seems slightly counterintuitive to use more energy to put in to uh, to get out of. But that happens all the time. It happens in uh, hydroelectric plants uh, already. And it might be something that uh, is, is very good from the energy storage point of view. And there are a few projects already being mooted. I think the Danes are now looking at... Um, <clears throat> Uh, linking 
um, large offshore developments with hydrogen production. The Scots are looking at it. It's been trialled up at uh, Orkney. There are joined up schemes where offshore wind, floating offshore wind is being teamed up with uh, with potential hydrogen production and, of course, existing oil and gas infrastructures uh, as well, which might yeah. just help project uh, economics. Yeah, I mean, I think they're the ones that have stood out to me in the last few weeks, particularly, have been both Orsted um, in, Den in Denmark, um, some of the Danish stuff with Shell um, and also Equinor. Uh, Norway. I mean, they're all they're all essentially their backgrounds are oil and gas companies. Um, so they're all companies that are used to thinking about things not just on a kind of individual project level, but thinking about big scale infrastructure and in particular how big in, how infrastructure in one place interconnects with infrastructure somewhere else. And kind of a, if you like a bigger picture, longer term investments, big scale and so on. And yes, in in the Netherlands particularly, they were talking about. Um, designing auctions for offshore wind that actually include hydrogen within the within the price of those auctions uh, so that was interesting linking it so linking offshore wind production specifically with um their if you like their existing infrastructure onshore netherlands obviously a big natural gas player but but with targets to remove natural gas and look at hydrogen in particular um they were looking i think it was the netherlands it may have been belgium one of those countries was talking about having licensing areas where um, actually it was there were licensing in areas that were going to be slightly separate for offshore wind with hydrogen as opposed to standard offshore wind. So, yeah, I, I see quite a lot of movement potentially going forwards with the linkage with offshore wind from hydrogen. And as I say, I think what's interesting about that is that that's going to be driven certainly in the short run, I think, by some of these big oil and gas companies uh, or in the case of the Orsteds of this world, companies that aren't oil and gas companies anymore, but certainly their background is oil and gas companies. So their their thinking and their mentality is still has has a kind of big scale, big project development, big management strategic um, view, which perhaps some of the kind of smaller developers in renewables don't have, where they're more kind of project oriented and they're trying to get a project away. It's interesting you. Uh... You say that, John, it might just be worth exploring. I did send uh, circulate a link on LinkedIn, and it might have been a rather fanciful article suggesting that uh, combined offshore wind and hydrogen might be sub zero subsidy within uh, 10 years, which may or may not be fanciful. But I think the trajectory is uh, is quite clear. Now, obviously, there are some drivers here. I mean, obviously, I would have thought that the oil and gas uh, industry uh, must be wanting uh, to try and avoid some of the decommissioning costs uh, that they're uh, on the hook for so they'll be mm. looking for perhaps um, solutions to use the existing kit uh, often there is existing kit and it can be repurposed and that might be a good opportunity to explore um, synergies uh, between uh, floating offshore with its, uh, its flexibility as it, can, you, it would seem as though if the water's deep enough the, the, the seabed constraints melt melt away to an extent especially if you've got an existing platform or installation there you'll have existing logistics the helicopter bases which uh, mm. Shell already's got in places so that's all already already there um, and uh, if you can then interest major players you're talking about mega sites really to make this uh, this work but I don't think that will sh scare the uh, the shells of this world won't balk at uh, 10, 10, uh, 10 gigawatt uh, sites. Uh, I, I, I was involved in Sea Green, which was five or six years ago, without any of these, with no storage or anything. But already that was 4.2 gigawatts in its entirety. So the bigger mega sites will encompass uh, 
an element even of, of defossilizing uh, or decarbonizing the fossil uh, elements using the existing kit, thinking strategically and on a, on a massive a massive scale. Mm. And it might not be one size, one development fits all. It might be, a, well, we'll put a bit of storage here. We'll put a bit of, um, uh, of decarbonize. We'll use this pipeline here. And then you tailor it to the site. But I was interested, and again, in a, it's something that hasn't got much attention, but this was uh, our, our chums at Boehm. We were there a couple of years ago, but they've just signed a memorandum of, of understanding, or possibly even deeper than that, with the, uh, with the uh, Dutch, uh, the, with the Netherlands government. Mm. Of course, um, Shell is uh, perhaps one of the bigger, I think that's probably the biggest company in, uh, yep. in the Netherlands, and uh, I'm sure that behind the scenes they're, uh, they're looking strategically on how they can uh, take a quantum leap forward, not just in, uh, in offshore winds, but in hydrogen, which you've already mentioned, and decarbonizing the existing existing uh, operations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, that's a whole there's a whole area to explore there in terms of, um, as you say, offshore. How offshore wind kind of, if you like, ties into a kind of whole offshore energy picture, which, as you say, could reuse existing platforms. Uh, we've we've talked in the past about also attaching kind of wave machines and so on onto some of those platforms um, and making use of grid connections as well, um, and then. I guess with hydrogen, it'd be interesting. I mean, most of the proposals, I think, at the moment are talking about um, hydrogen. The hydrogen production would be onshore. So you produce offshore wind and then the electrolysis would be would be onshore. But I mean, I popped into my head. I've not seen anyone propose it, but it'd be an intriguing suggestion. Again, talking about your reuse of platforms as to whether you could even there's even a, a possibility to produce hydrogen offshore so turn some of these on these offshore oil and gas platforms into offshore electrolysis facilities um, and then use the pipelines from those platforms to um, pipe the hydrogen onshore i don't know i've never heard of it done there might be all sorts of technical reasons why not but it's the kind of big thing it's the kind of thing that people uh, the the far outers are uh, are looking and 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 kind of doing the advanced feasibility Studies off. Obviously, we now have, and this wasn't less long ago, that the world's first off- offshore substation, and I think that was commissioned off uh, off the coast of the northwest of England, off mm. Barrow. And this isn't long ago because people always did that onshore. So you're into the world of wet or dry connections. In in recent years, on on the solar side, I've certainly seen floating solar installations on on reservoirs uh, now. So no, they're quite common nowadays. Yeah. So, so the, yeah. that, that wasn't the case a few yeah. years ago and we've got floating offshore wind. So the, who knows? I mean, you've got the space. One thing that the North Sea is, it's, uh, it's big. So you've got the space out there. And if some of the te- technical side of things can be uh, a cracked, but we've got now, I know the whole, um, streams of work looking at dynamic cabling, for example, which is another aspect of the offshore environment. And, and who knows? Uh, somebody will soon, sooner or later and say, "Well, let's let's trial it. Let's see if we can, what we can use this offshore installation uh, yeah. for. Could you even awesome. use it as a, as a base itself, for, uh, <laughs> kind of onshore wind turbines? It'd be a, a, yeah. a, whether it's strong enough to actually to, to use that as a generator in itself. So yeah. people will start to explore that kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's another random question that just popped into my head when you were talking about that with substations. Um, for float so for floating wind farms have you uh, heard any suggestion that the substation is floating because i mean these things are enormous aren't they or is yeah. the substation going to be fixed or will there not be a substation, well, well, substation yeah this, you've, you've, you've touched upon an interesting point and it's a point that people often forget forget with regards to projects and that is actually the cabling element it's not that the, the constraint might be you can push a, a wind farm out 100 miles for sure 
but where are you going to cable it to? Mm. So we're going to then think about a hub type of solution. So should we have one giant hub, but that will service five wind farms, offshore wind farms, or has as as has even been mooted, should we build an artificial island, which has been mooted on some of the shallower uh, uh, seabed around uh, Dogger, Dogger mm. Bank? And it seemed ludicrous when that was first um, mooted, uh, but it's gained some traction. People are actively uh, looking at it. So the constraint with regards to um, the cabling element. Now, we, they, we are now looking at dynamic in the old days. The old days, this is 10 years ago. You put your uh, offshore wind farm. Your cable then went down to the seabed, you trenched it a metre, perhaps a metre and a half underground. It came all the way back to uh, to land, 10 miles, which was considered long. But we're going much, much further out now, 50, 60, 100 miles out. Mm. You get the export back to uh, back to shore. Maybe there is a case for a floating, whether, whether perhaps, is a, 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 perhaps it merits a, a, perhaps a future uh, a blog, uh, perhaps yeah, a little bit I mean, detail on, on the current state of it. Considering it, it sounds yeah. ludicrous, doesn't it? You'd float, but why not? Who yeah. knows? It's possible. Right. So we're, Again, we're, randomly thinking as we speak, um, I mean, I've no idea how much an oil rig weighs, but could you convert an oil rig into a substation? Could you, could you then cable, could you use the route of the, oil and gas pipeline to as the route for the cabling back to shore from a floating substation yeah there's all sorts of interesting conversion possibilities well, well if you are a shell or a bp and you're looking at maximizing your and they do, they do this routinely this is an asset yeah, yeah. what we repurpose when's, when's it due to expire should we sweat it a few years but ultimately it will be expired what do we then repurpose it for because it's actually harder to start digging stuff up Offshore in the old days, decommissioning. Yeah, it sounds great, but actually it's very, very intrusive to decommission mm. pits of kids. It actually does more damage to the seabed than um, than leaving it in situ. Shell certainly found that to its uh, uh, its PR uh, cost over a couple yeah. of, uh, uh, of issues. Uh, so there's a, a new breed of what do we use them for? Do we use them as fish farms? Do we use them as, as, as refuges? Do we combine that with an export? So you can be sure that the big oil majors, when they look at their assets, will be exploring that and testing mm. it, testing it. And, of course, it's, you might test it now, and then you might find in five years' time, actually, the weight is reduced. So it might be worth retesting, or this is this development has occurred on the hydro field, so let's reevaluate. So it's such a fast-moving uh, field. In the old days, the old maps of the UK, offshore wind map, these are the locations. That's almost been ripped up now, because all the stuff that we excluded, the deep water close to shore no who could possibly uh, 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 kind of develop that well now those are bang in because they are close yeah, to yeah. shore reduced yeah. cabling costs uh, and, and 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 the floaters uh, yeah. bring them uh, back into uh, to play so it's a very much a, a let, let's trial let's see let's put a business case together what is the tech and where is the tech going to be all the business cases are getting blown uh, because of the advances and then and storage is coming and then new new cabling techniques. So I would discount nothing, however fanciful at this stage, uh, uh, John. Yeah. No, I think that's a fascinating area, the whole potential integration of offshore wind with the reuse of old assets that are that are either face decommissioning or or as you say face um the opportunity to have a new a new lease of life a new a new business case a kind of second second life if you like it ties in with i think a wider uh, a kind of societal drive and uh, there's a lot, a lot of talk around the circular economy and talk about um closing the um the loop that's been uh, promoted by the ellen macarthur uh, foundation this is only going to gather 
um, speed uh, in, in, in the coming weeks and months. And some of the offshore developers are starting to engage with the process, but I think that, that it's reduced waste. I think that is the essence of it. So don't waste and reuse, recycle, which is already part mm. of the... Uh, the, the renewable ethos, if you like, but now they're starting to make that meaningful. And of course, it's got advantages for oil and gas because they're off the hook for a whole heap of costs. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not entirely altruistic no. reason to do it. There's a perfectly good business reason to do it. Yeah. And it might combine in some of the other tech, like uh, the, the carbon capture stuff that's been floating around for, uh, for want of a word, for 10, 15 years without gaining much uh, traction. Yeah. But perhaps it's another time to readdress some of the old ideas. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, that's certainly coming back. Um, I think the the zero carbon document published this morning by the by the government. I think I've not read it in detail. I, I had read a quick summary of it. Um, but I think carbon capture, if to achieve that, carbon capture and storage is, becomes not just a kind of desirable thing; that it becomes a an essential thing, effectively. So, um, so yeah, that that will certainly come back into play. I'm sure. And it seems that the floating wind might be the glue that holds a lot of these apparently disparate energy elements um, together, they can make it perhaps uh, make it happen. It perhaps can revitalise elements of, uh, of kit that uh, yeah. is always out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, from a kind of general point of view, I, I kind of see, almost see kind of onshore becoming the place where we have small distributed assets because they're easier to plan and easier to permit. Um, so whereas onshore, we used to have big central power stations. I, I kind of see onshore being where we have kind of smaller distributed um, assets, but offshore is where we can go big scale and do things on a, on a large scale and connect them together, not just in the UK, but also connect them to other <laughs> countries as well. So big centralized into if you like, intercontinental assets. So, again, a very different environment in terms yeah. of business and infrastructure than, than we have onshore. And um, obviously, if you're thinking of that, that indicates grid as well. So you're talking about yeah. a potential offshore transmission grid being incorporated into the picture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, there was a, well, I mean, there's a there's a map out there showing the kind of interconnector plans for the UK and there's a huge expansion plan um, and development. There's a few already under construction that will come online which i think will um, more than double current interconnection capacity but then in terms of the pipeline going for another 10 or 15 years it it's sort of two or three four times the proposed capacity so at the moment these are still kind of one way well not sort of bi-directional but sort of point-to-point -point interconnectors between the uk and and a another country but as you say where it becomes interesting is if you have these hubs which then potentially have interconnectors which then can join, can spread out, and, and you can link the UK to several different companies, countries through a through a hub. Um, it's something that, um, if it's thought about in time, can be beneficial. Obviously, from a project development <coughs> point of view, it can be a nightmare because yeah. grid is one of the uh, harder elements of, uh, of project development, and then to have this proposition of a, of a hub, which may or may not be occurred, to a timeline which may or may not be feasible whilst you're investing millions of pounds into a project doesn't necessarily sit well but i did pick up with uh, some of the crown consultations in london last year that the grid was being involved at a very early stage and it may be that with the grid strategic vision they might say well there's going to be five gigawatts available xyz and if you build your projects on that timeline you know the problem with the grid is that there's it's not a two-way <laughs> it's not a two-way kind of uh a punishment if the deadlines are, uh, are met. It's a, it's a bit of the developer takes the uh, the hit. But if that can be resolved, 
uh, that uh, if the grid says, well, we'll put, if there's sufficient demand, we will put this facility here yeah. and it will yeah. be built by this time. Uh, then even rival, even rival developers would say, well, you take a gig, I'll take a gig and perhaps there'll be something and then, and then come think strategically. Not quite to that sign yet or that, that level yet, but it is being talked about. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which is refreshing. From a, it would come from a, a policy side and from a the planning side. And I think that's, I, I think we're starting to see, and I think we will see more of a change towards that i mean the the whole kind of industrial strategy points a little bit towards that but away from i think where renewables has kind of grown which has been lots of individual developers kind of being encouraged to do their own thing but i think what we will start to see is a bit more of a kind of especially for these very big projects on a kind of system level a bit more of a kind of if you like a managed framework that policy provides which will include having a, a reliable predictable kind of pipeline because as you say, that's you need, you've got to have that reliable, predictable pipeline of a certain scale to get people to buy in, to then being prepared to wait for and invest in and be involved in the creation of some of these hub type situations and some of these yeah. shared bits of infrastructure. I, th I think that I can see that. Ha I can see that it's, happening. It's all about the, the, the crown is taking on some of the other de-risking now with its allocation of the zone using GIS like the developers used to do. So the Crown is taking, we came across this in Boehm, didn't we, in the States, mm. where the Boehm did far more at the time yeah. than uh, the equivalent bodies in the UK did. But the Crown has perhaps ironically learned from that and said, well, we'll take it, we'll do the zonal stuff, we'll talk to the military, we'll talk to various stakeholders early. Yeah. And we'll scope out the, uh, the the unworkable stuff. And we'll talk to grid early, you know, because there's a hefty fee when a developer talks to uh, to the grid, whether that is still quite so hefty when somebody, a body like the Crown uh, talks and takes mm. a strategic view, I'm not so um, so sure. So it's already been de-risked up front, yeah. which means a higher proportion of, uh, of of the risk is taken away from the uh, the developer, which yeah. means you will effectively get your consent, which is a big risk. Yeah. That means you can plan and engage. Why would you engage a supply chain pre-consent? Well, I think the... Uh, the consent, consent, consenting risk is so minimal. You'll be talking about amendments and planning conditions rather than not getting your project, uh, which gives confidence throughout the process right through to banks, to stakeholders uh, on, on the supply chain side. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and as you say, I, I think the bottleneck um, has been, if you like, not a, a clear set of targets and pipeline and, um, and growth. I think I think that's from a policy side. What has to come in is there's got to be a clear, clear ladder, if you like, that you're kind of walking up um, about having we're going to add this much every year in these positions. And so uh, again, I think I think that's specific to the kind of big offshore infrastructure. I, th I think you can't. I think government are kind of arriving at the idea that you can't it can't just be a kind of wild west individual projects dotted where they feel like <laughs> going forwards you've got it has got to be a bit more kind of strategic play within it because it also i mean it also benefits not just as we've i mean as we've talked about it's also benefits the supply chain the where you're locating these things for optimum kind of employment and economic benefits on shore so that you're in the right areas and that kind of stuff so that if you're going to tie all those aspects together in a sensible way You've got to. There's got to be a someone. Someone at some point has to put that plan in place, uh, and not not, necessarily say, um, not not project manage it, but provide a framework in which everyone else can kind of make their little bit of money along the way. It's it's funny you say that because I mean this is how rapidly this industry moves. We went up to uh, to Glasgow last year for all energy. At that time, there was no strategy. There was no uh, strategic kind of um, sector deal. Uh, it wasn't in place. It was just being mooted. 
And now here we are, and you could argue, I suppose, that part of the byproduct of the sectorial deal is giving the supply chain confidence to think of 10, 12, 15, 20 megawatt machines and start allocating a bit of resource because they know they know that these projects will now be um, to be built out because they're underpinned. They've got all party mm. support. It's all in place. It's given a lot of confidence, which has enabled an already successful industry to take another quantum leap forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also now starting, and certainly on the Scottish side, to bring other fish farming, hydrogen, other technologies. Can wind be harnessed to sister and complementary seabed use to encourage their development alongside its evident success as well? So that's the slightly less commercially, but more socially mm. oriented approach that will emerge from Scotland with its various scenarios. Could we encourage other industries to join in with offshore wind? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, well, there's a lot in probably, there, John. <laughs> a lot in there. Probably a good place to leave it. Um, yeah. It's probably, again, a good place to mention again All Energy in Glasgow, which we'll both be at. Yeah, come so along and connect, say hello. Then feel free to get in touch with us, contact us via LinkedIn or through our website um, and get in touch and look forward to meeting you there. Yeah, that's okay. from, from, uh, from my point of view, it's an interesting discussion. Uh, with with uh, John Massey there, but um, we, we we always try to be responsive to what you what you want the people the customers. So if you've got ideas that you'd like us to uh, to chinwag through, if you've got uh, aspects of today's discussion, there are a whole heap of things that emerge that we haven't touched in podcast transmission aspects, um, the social aspects, the stakeholder aspects, the supply chain. All of these things are part of the bigger picture we've discussed uh, today. If you'd like us to discuss uh, these issues going forward, please, please let us know. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly echo those thoughts. Okay, so enough for today and we'll we'll see you on the next one. Okay, cheers. All right.